1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody,
0: and welcome to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tanya Tuller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amanda Phillips about her book Sea Change: Ottoman Textiles Between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Amanda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so before we start talking about um, your lovely book, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how did this book come to life?
1: Sure. So Tanya and I, um, of course, we've already talked a little bit. Um, Maybe a few listeners know I'm American. Perhaps you can tell by my accent. And I started um, college with a real interest in art history that I was lucky enough to have. Uh, from high school. And so after some intervening years, after living in Paris, in Tunisia, in Turkey, and elsewhere, uh, this interest in textiles, I don't know if it culminated or sort of started again with my doctoral dissertation um, at Oxford. And this, um, I really wanted to look at silk textiles, and I identified a real particular type of silk textile, a kind of velvet made in the Ottoman empire. And this kind of velvet is a cushion cover. And I don't think anyone could believe that somebody was going to write a dissertation about cushion covers, but there you have it. So that was, you know, five long years of research on upholstery, basically. But It turned out that this was sort of a great way to talk about social and economic history. It was a great way to talk about technology. It's a great way to talk about the objects themselves. They are beautiful, the best of them. But then when I sort of thought about turning this into a book, first of all, I'm not sure I could have found a publisher willing to take on cushion covers entirely. It also became so clear to me that I couldn't talk about these without talking about other kinds of textiles. And that's because, you know, for, for these complicated things like a velvet, we'll talk about, you know, lampus or damask later. Um, the technology is huge. The types of different materials are large in number. Um, the numbers of people working on them, also, colossal, so when we think about these big landscapes, these big groups of sort of artisans, we think about silk coming from one place, gold from somewhere else, and then we think about the people consuming or purchasing these velvets or other cloth, we sort of have to do a big rethinking, and the big rethinking just makes everything bigger. What I mean by this is I think you know we sit here as art historians and we're interested in luxury textiles, we're interested in things with motifs or decoration. But when we think about the way people use things, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. And we leave stuff out such as plain, but really sumptuous and expensive silk or wool and mohair, which could be just as expensive and again, just as luxurious as a silk. So with this sort of expanded landscape, Um, I began to think not only of materials and consumers, but of actual geography. So the story between Ottoman silk and Italy, especially, I think it has been so well told in the past, say, 25 years. But there's quite a lot to say, too, about the Ottoman relationship with Iran, Syria, Iraq and India as well. The Red Sea trade, the overland trade and the fact that these textiles were arriving in huge volume in the Ottoman capital Istanbul as, as, as elsewhere. So thinking about that, thinking about all of these things, you know, it got me into the book. I wanted to tell a big history and I have to admit something here. It took me well into the writing of this book to think through what makes textiles different, right? Again, here we are, we're art historians mostly, and here we are on a podcast too, right? You can not actually see the stuff, but art historians, we're so visual, right? We're always looking at, at look, basically, but textiles really are maybe chiefly interesting for their other properties, right? They're heavy, they're light, they're scratchy, they're soft, they're stiff, they're supple, and, They can be made in any number of ways, used in any number of other ways. So thinking about textiles as this unique category really sort of got me going. And I'm going to leave it there, but also say, too, in the past, I would say, 10 or 15 years, things have also changed so much in terms of the accessibility of collections. And I have really profited from that. Um, just by sheer happenstance. So much is now online that I can track down. So much um, is open to researchers, um, but the way things weren't uh, historically. So, um, all of these things together, there you go. <laughs>
0: Perfect. So basically, a proper journey of of the book, um, as the journey of the textiles as well. Um, So if we start at the beginning, I mean, you you do get quite technical um, about the production as well, which um, is something that we tend to see more and more now in art historical practices as well, so that we don't just look at the object and describe the object, but we are also exploring deep down um, in how the object has been produced and where the differences in these productions are. So at the beginning in your first chapter, if we start there, you lead the reader on a journey of silk weaving. Um, Marco Polo mentioned silk production in Turkic lands, and your discussion starts with this beautiful photograph of fragments of a garment that was made for the Seljuk ruler Sultan al Kaykubad. And there are one of the beginnings of silk production in Anatolia before Ottoman rulers gained the power in the area. Yet silk production is rather complex enterprise. And as we learn in, in your book, quite intensely, that um, it's not so easy to, to get to the end product. Could you explain to us what it involves and why it is so precarious?
1: Sure. And, right, so again, we're mentioning this thing that neither of us can see right now. Um, So, right, this um, this silk that was made for the Seljuk ruler, um, Aladin Kaikubad, is amazing. It's a unicum, so it's the only thing like it. So it's crimson, it's gold. It's sort of unusual in its motifs. It has these um, stacks of medallions with pairs of tigers that are back to back, but they also sort of turn their heads to snarl at each other and it's also quite interesting because it has a name on it which allows us uh to date it quite tightly right to the 1220s or so and then at some point you know it is a textile it was made for this man presumably but it got cut up and turned into a liturgical garment right and so this is you know textiles are transforming so knowing that about the Object. We can also talk a little bit about, yeah, this whole point um, you just totally correctly made about complexity here. So, this is a kind of textile. It's what's called a compound weave um, in a general sense, and a samite. In a more sort of narrow category. And Samite was a textile structure, almost always silk, woven in Byzantium in Italy, but also Syria, Iran, and Iraq, you know, really until around 1000 or 1200. This is a little bit of an outlier. So, Samite, this compound weave, um, is made on a giant draw loom that's also equipped with a patterning harness. And this is a device that allows for swift, mechanized repetition of motif, exact repetition. So that's a huge advantage. But it took some setting up. It had to be programmed ahead by a designer who understood exactly the unders and the overs of the warps and wefts that would eventually result in these repeating motifs. So you can tell already it's a big machine. It required intense expertise for the pre-programming, then also some expertise in setting up, so mounting that device, um, threading the loom as well. And then in terms of the weaving, it took two different people, a weaver and what we often call a drawboy or an assistant. They were each in charge of one set of warps. And so that's actually sort of the most basic part. And then you think about all the people growing the silk and reeling the silk and dyeing the silk. If you want to take it further back, um, my colleagues point us out, mining the gold, making that thread as well. So these are a lot of different inputs requiring many types of different expertise. So lose one of those. There's your complexity. It all kind of falls apart. And I would say too, um, In terms, I mean, so I'm going to pause here and go back to some complexity and precarity, too. Um, And we think about that date in particular for the Kaikubad silk, right? That's 1220s. And this is a very precarious moment in Anatolia, right? So, what's now Turkey? Um, There's the Latin occupation of Constantinople, right? Byzantium had been briefly defeated. Um, we also have the sort of beginnings of the breakdown of the Armenian kingdoms in Cilicia, sort of uh, what we think of sort of now as north, northern Syria or Mesopotamia. We have incredible movement of people around forced migration and otherwise, and a lot of sort of, you know, shifting power. So how does a center that's making such a complex object survive these kinds of changes? You know, it's very much an open question. And then on the other hand, um, who has, Sultan or otherwise, the ability to commission an object like this from some center that does appear to sustain or be resilient enough? to make it. And I'm going to add one more thing here too, is that the Kaikabad silk, um, and I have not analyzed this, so I'm relying on the work of my colleague um, Susan Day at the Textile Museum in Lyon. Um, she noticed that this is a samite on one hand, um, but it uses gold thread on an animal substrate. So what that is, um, is uh, either gut or leather that's been gilded or use some um, sort of paste to get your gold on there. And this is something that's really found in Central Asia or Eastern Iran. So it's a weave structure used in West Asia, but a material more commonly found in Central Asia. So this is a quite interesting point. It also sort of lets us see this much more expanded landscape. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because we sometimes um, try and figure out where the material comes from, but we sometimes don't have this knowledge where the actual skill comes from. Um, maybe that's why the, these textiles are so uh, fascinating to study, uh, something that we might not fully acknowledge in terms of not having that kind of um, output in, let's say, uh, ceramics or, or glass, for for example. Um, so, uh, if we're following uh, further on on that journey, you are leading us um, towards um, a sort of a center of of production and a formation of center of production uh, in in Bursa. Um, Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about it?
1: So, yes, just to speak a little bit about Bursa, which... um, we have pretty good evidence for in the Ottoman lingerie was a major center for silk weaving. So it's also an early Ottoman capital. The sultans did some early mosque building there starting in the 1330s. Um, if not earlier, the city was conquered in 1326. Um, and the earliest evidence for silk weaving there in fact comes from a Bavarian prisoner of war who mentioned silks being sold in the marketplace, which of course is not evidence for weaving. But he actually, as a prisoner of war, makes his way to Iran, where he does then comment that uh, real silk or silk filament that's grown in Iran is sent to Bursa for weaving. So there we have some pretty clear evidence. What we don't have at this point is a ton of objects, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, In terms of borsa, it does seem like, before the Ottomans, there was not a tradition of silk weaving there. Other kinds of weaving, yes, perhaps. Remember, too, the circumstances of the Byzantine Empire, circa 1300 or so. um, Silk weaving there had also fallen into desuetude. Um, But other kinds of weaving, maybe. And to think of this expanded landscape where certain kinds of cotton or linen weaving may create at least a baseline of expertise for silk weaving is one thing. But then on the other hand, what the Ottoman sultans were doing in this period sort of from the 1330s or so, were creating secure market places. And they also made Bursa a customs point so that the silk filament coming along the Silk Road from Iran at this point was taxed in Bursa. We understand from other centers perhaps or other parts of history that silk weaving often follows silk filament. So as we stretch from east to west, the filament comes first, the expertise in weaving comes second. So perhaps this is how it started in Bursa. However, for those really fancy silks we're talking about, it almost certainly would have required bringing artisans, one does not stumble into this technology, and sponsoring a workshop. So did merchants perhaps see an opportunity? Did an Ottoman sultan at some point see an opportunity? as well. So Bursa continues to grow. 1330s, we have an Ottoman civil war at the very beginning of the 15th century. But by the 1460s, we have more evidence here from archival sources that state looms were being bought and sold in Bursa. And from there, much more evidence and some relatively securely dated textiles that seem to have come from there as well.
0: So you've already mentioned some of these materials preserved in um, in churches and one specific case study that you um, first presented in your book is the student, it's a silk with an inscription naming Sultan Bayezid It seems like a very unique detective story, this uh, uncovering of the unknown or at least little known silk from otherwise famous Studenica monastery. I mean, I have to admit, as an undergraduate student at the University of Ljubljana, we had a special course just on frescoes of, um, you know, different monasteries and churches of um, uh, Serbia. And Studenica was one of these beautiful prime examples, but nobody ever mentioned any textiles. So, how did you come across this object and uh, what is so significant about it?
1: Right. So, I think in some, it is a significant object for me, but it, in other ways, and you make a point, it pales in significance to how famous Studenica Monastery in sort of south central Serbia is for its other art. So, namely, its incredible cycle of frescoes and then also sort of the church architecture of the cathedral as well. Just so super important. And maybe. You know, in all fairness, they kind of overshadow the textile. So, I mean, part of the answer there, too, is that um, that this silk, which of course is the Olivera silk, um, as it's known in the monastic community, is pretty well known there, right? And it's really famous because it's connected to the wife of Sultan Bayezid I, that's Princess Yuleva Olivera, who is said to have brought it to Studenitsa. Um, It's also known in the community there as a it was possibly used as a cenotaph, um, sorry, cenotaph cover um, for uh, the Serbian king Stefan Nemanja. And this is very important. And it's pretty well published in Serbia. There's a catalog from the treasury at Studenica where there's color photos and a Yugoslav scholar also published it in a journal in the mid 20th century. including translating the inscriptions. So this came into, this incredible textile came into English language literature sort of in the mid-later 20th century because of really contact among Byzantinists more than anything. And it made it into sort of the Islamic art history world um, in a short article by Richie Eddinghausen. I think it was 1969. So, so there it was sort of hiding in plain, Site. It gets picked up um, in another big book, sort of the really big famous book on Ottoman textiles called Ipec. But I don't think they had a chance to see or analyze it, or at least to get a good photo. But it's that book that allowed me to find it and then follow up. So, yeah, I mean. I want to say something about this quickly, right? Again, I'm talking about this massive, incredible hanging, and of course, we can't see it. Um, so it's the earliest surviving Ottoman textile that we know about, I think, bar none. Um, it's one of the first extant pieces of Ottoman art, bar none. I mean, setting aside architecture. That said, though, you know, it's a unicum. So what it is? It's you know, it's massive. First of all, it's two by three meters which makes it much bigger than anything we have um, from the Ottoman Empire otherwise. Um, In addition, it has these bands with different patterns, you know, sort of alternating, and a repeating inscription that wishes Bayezid glorious victories. Nothing like that else, right? And so from this, we know the date, that's circa 1400 again. And so it's a unicum. It means we have a gap before and also a gap afterward. It's about another 60-odd years before we get the next textiles we can maybe attribute to um, the Ottoman Empire. It's also, by the way, you know, thinking outside the Ottoman Empire box, um, really one of the very few things that survives intact from the years around 1400. It is amazing. It it is preserved the way I think it was made right down to the end tassels. So this is also extraordinary, and it is worth uh, more study than I have done. Um, and I hope uh, going forward, we'll be uh, doing some more work um, with the community there, um, and with the abbot and with the patriarch, who've been also extraordinarily generous in granting me um, access to this object and. Uh, working with my colleagues as well. So I feel incredibly privileged to have had this opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: So we have talked about this um, beautiful silks, but sort of late 15th, 16th century, see also the rise of Damascus and Lampas and Velvets. So would different type of textiles indicate different use and different types of garments?
1: So the short answer here is no. Um, textiles do not always have a one-to-one correspondence with garments. But of course, right, um, I'm an academic, so I'm going to expand on this a little bit. So one of the, yeah, one of the ones uh, we talk about is something called sarasar. That's an Ottoman word. It's, it's like a cloth of gold more or less, so a ton of metal thread. And these do seem to be really associated with robes of honor, especially as we get into the 1700s or so. But in other cases, you know, textiles, again, it's a funny medium. They're pretty able to transform depending on what you need them to do. So we talk about Sarah serre for robes of honor or hilat, but I have read in archival sources that eventually people maybe cut up their robes of honor and turn them into pillows. So I've seen something referred to as a robe of honor pillow. I don't know quite what to make of that. Uh, There's also clear examples well published of liturgical garments for the Greek or Russian Orthodox churches, also for the Catholic church in Italy, Um, garments made out of cut up cushion covers, which are quite easy to identify. There's a pair of amazing kaftans at the Saray Museum that were made of what were probably initially curtains. So there is a great deal of flexibility, but I think probably in the 1700s or so, we see a growing divide in some kinds of fabrics, meaning those used for upholstery versus those used for clothing. And this is because in part, For some clothing, at least, there's a rise in lightweight materials, right? Made of a mix of silk and cotton, meant to be softer, um, easier to touch, and better for garments as well. So not stiff, not bulky, not suitable for upholstery. So there is a slight divide at some points. But again, I think it's not as clear that we sitting here in 2022 um, would expect. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Right. If I just may, may I add on to this, um, you do explain beautifully different type of garments and how they are made. But what I found um, interesting and surprising to some end was um, the velvets and the complexity that goes into producing um, um, velvet um, uh, textiles. Um would, uh, so would you be able to elaborate a little bit on what kind of technology is involved? And also, why were the velvets popular particularly in crimson color? Or maybe that's just my impression.
1: I think it's a completely correct impression too. You know, if you sort of flip through a book of Ottoman textiles, you see a lot of crimson velvet. So I'll answer that first just for the fun of it. And I don't have a great answer for this. I think um, you will know, some, uh, maybe some other people have sort of would notice a shift. Um, we think of purple, at least in sort of West Asia and the Mediterranean, as the royal color, right? Something coming from the Romans through Byzantium as well, absolutely. But by the time we get to the Ottomans, we'd had the sort of intervening disruption of the Mongol invasions of West Asia, and they seem to bring with them from Central Asia or from China, really a taste for crimson. And so it's crimson that gets used over and over again um, by the Ottomans, but by other polities, um, the Italians, most notably in this period as well. It's the sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century. And the crimson, Usually for the Ottomans, it was made out of um, a kind of bug, right? Rather unpleasant-looking little bug. Um, But they could also use um, combinations, too, of matter, so a sort of dye root. And um, in some cases, too, counterfeit dye or uncolorfast dye that was coming from a tropical hardwood. Again, this is well attested in both archival sources and in the extant textiles themselves so a lot of ways to get your scarlet or your crimson in this period some better than others for velvets in particular that crimson absolutely does seem to kind of stick with them more than other types of fabrics um, and again I'm not entirely sure why they seem to the crimson ones do survive archival sources do mention other colors but compression again overwhelmingly crimson so, velvet, and here we're talking really about silk velvet. There are some other kinds out there. What we're talking about is a kind of fabric with little tufts that give it this characteristic pile, right? That plush surface that really defines velvet. In terms of the origin of this structure, nobody's quite sure. Uh, Michael Peter of the Stiftung has suggested, I think, North China um, circa 1100, maybe earlier. So by the time we get to the Ottomans and you know the 1400s, velvet's been made in Italy and Iran and Central Asia for some centuries. And when we talk about velvet, you know, for the Ottomans as elsewhere, there are a couple of types. So there's the solid pile plush in a single color, right? There's also solid pattern, a solid pile with a pattern as well. So, you know, whether it's tulips or medallions or what have you. And then there's something called voided and brocaded velvet, where you get, you know, bits of it or parts of a motif with this kind of pile. But then also the empty areas with no pile are infilled with an extra metal thread. So it makes this incredible contrast between these lush, plush crimson areas and this sort of glittering gold. So already you can tell that this is expensive, and it's complicated. Um, velvet in all cases that we've talked about require a second set of warps. So a second beam on the loom or a separate weighting system if it has a pattern. And also we think about it, you know, velvet is kind of 3D, right? All of those little tufts, it turns out they take a ton of silk to make. So it's material, intensive. It takes about eight times the amount, uh, the length of silk you would have for sort of a regular flat textile to get you all those little loops or tufts. So there is a luxury textile. In terms of making, how does this work? um, Depends on exactly the type, but this is work that's done by the weaver as she, or usually he, is uh, passing The weft and it involves pulling little loops over a rod or wire and then letting them fall back down so you create the loop and then using a knife often using a knife to cut it as well. So it requires a couple of extra steps as well as all this extra material. The ones with patterns are made on these giant looms with pattern harnesses, so requiring the kind of pre programming and setup ahead of time as well. So, a very complicated fabric in terms of technology and also in terms of materials. Uh, you know, that plush, it only looks good if your thread is of great quality as well.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Um... Every time I, um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk hopefully um, uh, further down uh, more about the tactile part of, of the textiles, but uh, plush is one that I always need to touch. It's some somehow you are drawn towards it to, to touch that uh, silkiness, if I may use that word, um, uh, element um, of it. But one other bit that was really interesting to read is, um, was that one group of people that had special garments produced were Janissaries. And these were soldiers. They were usually boys who were kidnapped or recruited from um, Christian lands and then... um, Educated and became part of uh, Ottoman army, and uh, you mentioned that um, they wore waterproof garments. Um, would you be able to explain a little bit more um, about that?
1: Yeah, sure. But right, we uh, we can also abandon our Janissaries, right? So our Indian Ottoman <laughs> guard, such a great story. Um, so this is sort of a standing army, which is pretty unusual in the period, and they get again, unusually, right, sort of quasi uniforms uh, that distinguish them, right? So these are embellished with gold thread. They're complemented by these incredible, tall, white, cylindrical hats known as burq that really set them apart from other, other parts of the Ottoman army, certainly from the Ottoman populace, right? And it's also interesting, in the 16th century, the wool used for these costumes, was made in and around the city of Salonika. This is a monopoly that's controlled at that point by Ottoman Jewish subjects who had fled the Iberian Peninsula during the final years of the Reconquista and had been welcomed or at least tolerated in Salonika and elsewhere. And so the sultans gave them a special license to weave these specific woolens for the Janissaries. and. So that's quite interesting, and it gives us actually a sense of part of the waterproofing process. Um, So let me back up a little bit. So we're talking about wool, for instance, and wool is an animal fiber. It's already somewhat waterproof if it's tightly woven, unlike, say, cotton. But there are additional ways to make it more waterproof. And the first of these is fulling it. Take a woven textile or a woven woolen, um, raise a nap by combing or brushing, so raise little fibers, and then beat it to recompact these fibers. The scales on a piece of uh, fiber of wool catch at each other and they sort of mat. And what we think some of these Ottoman Jewish subjects had brought with them from Iberia is a kind of fulling mill that used a trip hammer to really compact those fibers and help make them more waterproof. Another way to do this, of course, is to grease the wool. So take the fabric and give it sort of a, a, you know, oily coating that would help again to repel the water. And you know, the soldiers got waterproof garments and um, so did really anyone who could afford them as well. Certainly maybe different ones, but our archival sources attest to rain cloaks. Certainly, and some of these could be quite nice, wool could be very expensive as well.
0: Well, throughout the book, you also mentioned the trade contacts. They weave a special undercurrent of these influences in both technology and motif transfer. Um, I think here, obviously, um, about Italy mainly, cities such as Venice, Lucca, Pisa, which we know uh, were um, uh, textile enterprises, so to speak. And they produced their own textiles that were very similar to Ottoman ones. It seems... I always look at it as a race for dominance over the innovation, over the uh, industry, um, and also the economic gain that comes uh, through that. But um, were there also positive takes, takeaways and um, if at all, can how can they be seen in Ottoman
1: textiles? It is very much a give and take relationship. Between the Ottomans and their counterparts, and really, I'll talk about Venice here because I, I have kind of better information about it. I'll leave aside Genoa and Florence or Pisa or Lucca, a, a little bit. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's give and take. It's also a push and pull, in some ways. So when we talk about a race for dominance or competition, I think that that's a good way to put it. And there's quite a bit of push pull, maybe chicken and egg when it comes to similarities between Italian and Ottoman textiles. And when I think of this, I really think of velvets, right, in terms of them looking very much alike. It's a little less clear, maybe, for that cloth of gold um, or for the kinds of multicolored flowered textiles we get in the 16th century for the Ottomans. So to talk about a rivalry or a rush for dominance, right? we do know a good deal about Italy, about Venice in particular, from the work of Luca Mola, among others, and how weavers in that city really tried in working with the city to keep certain technologies proprietary, right, to preserve monopolies on certain kinds of silk weaving. By contrast, though, the Ottoman as ministers, the mindset seems to be different. So rivalry in terms of either large or really high-quality production of silk textiles is not a concern for them. Instead, the focus is on providing excellent silk textiles and other textiles and other goods to Ottoman subjects. So there's the push-pull. They were delighted the Venetians, among others, were weaving all this great stuff that they could end up purchasing. So this Ottoman economic mindset, sometimes called provisionist, right, it's about ensuring abundance, the well-being of your subjects, make sure there were great stuff available at fair prices. So the Ottomans were delighted. Now I say the Ottomans; that's kind of large. But the Ottoman Sultan, his ministers, the market inspectors were glad to have all of these high quality and, really, frankly, very beautiful things coming from Venice or wherever else as well. Um,
0: so, you were, um, if we are progressing through the book, um, in your chapter four, you are talking a lot about the the labor, the the training, the the people who worked in these um, workshops. Could we talk about an organized group of people in a sense of contemporary guilds in the Western world that they would have their own rules, their regulated prices, set of designs, or we're having a completely different structure?
1: That's a great question. And there's been a certain amount of discussion about whether we should think of these as guilds with all that term incorporates for Europe. So organized groups of artisans with a clear hierarchical structure that come together in part to defend their own interests, but then also to sort of, I don't know, set set rules among themselves. So um, Ottoman historians who've worked on this say there are things shared in common between these European ones and the Ottomans. Part of the problem for the Ottomans, so this is for silk weaving, among other things, is we tend to only have snapshots of what they're up to. This is because they don't seem to generate documents on their own terms, but only when they brush up against some sort of administrative or legal structure that creates the kind of source that discusses them. So when we think of these groups of artisans, and we read court cases mostly, Uh, legal proceedings brought to the Sharia court of the Ottoman Empire, what we're seeing is only sort of a little bit of what's going on. So these cases, certainly, they're arguments about price. They're arguments about the quality of materials. They're sometimes arguments about the length of apprenticeship or day laborers leaving looms when they've agreed to work more. So they give you a sense of a group of people Sometimes they name a guild elder. We could think of that sort of as a headman. We have apprentices, journeymen as well. What we don't have is a sense that this remained static or constant. People have argued, I think probably correctly, that these groups were kind of fluid. They came together as necessary to, again, defend their interests as need be against outsiders, against the central authorities against interlopers of one sort or another, but they did not um, necessarily sort of year on year maintain this necessarily.
0: Yeah. That makes um, a lot of sense, uh, actually, in, this, um, in a very fast-moving in- environment, um, also politically in-, in that area, I would say. Um, well, my name is Tanya Tuller, and I'm talking to Amanda Phillips about her new book, Sea Change, Ottoman Textiles Between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. And um, if we are looking towards the end of your book, um, you are talking About next stage, new centuries, um, sixteenth to eighteenth century production. How did this production and the consumption of Ottoman silks and, by default, velvets and damask change in those uh, centuries?
1: Some things definitely change, and we can track this certainly through extant objects, which we attribute uh, based, you know, on sort of stylistic evidence to one period or another. Other evidence for change comes from archival sources. So way back when I was doing my doctoral research, I noticed that um, certain kinds of these really heavy, beautiful luxury leaves seem to be present less often in estate inventories from sort of the late 1600s and 1700s. In the 1700s in particular, there's a really steep fall off in um, listings for different kinds of velvet. Those cushion covers, man, they remain constant, but it looks like people have less, maybe less is being produced of the other sorts. So then the question is, is what's driving this. Is it a problem in production, or is it a shift in consumption? Did an Ottoman consumer, so these people whose estate inventories we are reading, did they want something else, or is it just that other things were available to them, new things? So production, consumption. Other archival sources give us the names of what seem to be new types of textiles coming in again in the sort of 1650s into the 1700s. Uh, One of the names of these fabrics is kitai, or cafe, or China, and it certainly wasn't from China. It was a type of textile that could be imported from Syria, from India, from Iran. It's a ghost textile. I'm not exactly sure what it looked like, but it seems to appear in greater Numbers Was it some sort of chinoiserie? At the same time, there is an increase in the amount of a fabric called Garamasud, which seems to maybe be coming from South Asia, and then an Ottoman imitation of that as well. So in, some people might want to call this import substitution, right? You start making your own local version of a more expensive imported type. Now, we do not have these in surviving examples, at least not that we know of. Part of the problem with material culture studies is making a link between what your archival source tells you and the actual type of object it describes. So here we're a little bit out of luck. We do have other types of evidence certainly um, for changes in textiles. So for instance, if we look at manuscript painting or costume books, they seem to represent slightly different types than we've seen before. And certainly the visual or extant evidence is compelling. However, there's also things that stay the same. So robes of honor mentioned earlier, still made out of that cloth of gold or silver. Um, Also, the hangings made um, for the shrines at Mecca and Medina, these remain constant. So this is a fairly um, unchanging 400 years of making these hangings. And even with the introduction of jacquard head looms, so fully automated looms, these hangings uh, remained um, from the 1850s into the 1920s, pretty constant. So, you know, fashion, trade, the interwoven globe on one hand, but then things that remain purposefully um, stagnant—I don't want to say stagnant—purposefully conservative or um, you know appropriately
0: conservative. Well, all the chapters of uh, the book are prefaced by Turkish proverbs, which I really enjoyed. And one reads with patience: "The cocoon of the mulberry leaf is made into a silk dress." So I hope our listeners who have patiently followed our conversation have built enough interest in the topic to pick up uh, the book and read further about the complex and varied textile production in Ottoman lands. The book, I have to mention, also provides really comprehensive glossary, a list of bibliography and a large number of beautiful colored photographs, which we cannot really share uh, because we are uh, here on a podcast, but worth was to check them out. One only wish to be able to also touch these garments, and I loved how you discussed this tactile element of garments as well, how they wrap around the human body to protect, to elaborate, to elevate. So do you think art history should pay closer attention to this tactile role of an object across all material culture?
1: The obvious answer is yes. I absolutely <laughs> do. And I- In some ways, right? I I commented, you know, at the very beginning, how lucky we all are that we can see things online now, that collections are digitized, so we can do our detective work uh, diligently and easily. But in other ways, I think we're robbed of something if that's the only thing we do. We don't have a sense of scale, we don't have a sense of texture, certainly, or the glitter and shine, even, of some of these things. And I would extend that certainly to ceramics, you know, the way we hold things you know if we want to talk tactile we could also talk haptic right really reaching out touching pulling on a handle or something and even for arts of the book um, most of us see things you know um how do i want to say this vertically on the wall or on the screen but of course a book is meant to be held at a desk or on a lap it's something completely different pages are meant to be sort of pulled and touched. And I do think art history really has come around to this. Um, whether that translates into sort of our ev- everyday experience and really thinking through this more carefully, um, I hope the results will be good in the next uh, you know, decade or so.
0: Yes, so do I because I also work with material culture and I I have this uh innate uh drive every time to touch things and learn through the touch. Um I think uh, there's so much to learn through, through just that bit.
1: And you This is something, and I don't know how successfully I brought this out. This is something an Ottoman consumer or any sort of consumer in these centuries would understand. You don't understand a textile by looking at it. You are urged to touch the textile. This is how you understand quality and make sure you are not getting a bad bargain for your hard-earned coin. So how heavy is it? How likely is it to withstand wear? You know by touching, not by seeing. Yeah,
0: that's a wonderful point. Um, thank you, Amanda. We've taken a lot of your time and um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. But to close our conversation, I have one last question um, because I'm i a nosy kind. I really want to know um, if you could get one garment made by the Ottoman textile craftsman, uh, what would you um, select uh, to, to have made for you?
1: Oh, uh-huh. I don't know if it's a garment, but wrap me up in one of those mohair blankets, right? Absolutely. I mean, I would look, I don't know, I'd look at what the Ottoman commentaries called an uncouth bear, but surely, totally worth it, I think, for the softness and, and the warmth of that um, goat hair. So, yeah, just great stuff. And again, tactile.
0: Absolutely. Sounds um, very, very nice, very delightful, I must say. Um, Just before we close, um, would you mind sharing, are you working on something textile related for your next research project or you're walking away from textiles for for a bit? Uh,
1: No, I will never go too far from textiles. Um, It's also partly my training, right? So I I will stick this for a while. Right now I'm working with a colleague um, on a very small article, I'll talk about that quickly, about a technology for terry cloth, which is actually really similar to the technology for velvet. So what we come to know as Turkish toweling, terry, whatever, um, it seems to be a structure that originates in the Ottoman Empire. And then we talked about the Industrial Revolution, Tanya and I a little earlier, gets translated to the Manchester context in about 1850. So that's my little sort of foray into um, transnational textiles in the modern period, actually.
0: Well, Amanda, that sounds like a great uh, project. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed um, your book. Um, So again, uh, Amanda Phillips' book, Sea Change, Ottoman Textiles Between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, is out uh, now. And um, thank you for today and take care.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.